0: Hello, welcome to this podcast from the BCCJ as part of our Default to Action webinar series. We know there is a lot to process right now and hope that by providing you with insights, best practices, government advice, wellbeing tips, that this medium will provide a reliable source to help steer you through some of the business and personal challenges ahead. We aim to provide an element of live interactivity to these broadcasts and recommend checking out the BCCJ website for upcoming streams. That's www.bccjapan.com. And finally, if there is a topic you would like us to cover, or a speaker you would like to hear from, let us know at info@bccjapan.com. Thank you.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to this BCCJ webinar entitled Back to Work, Back to Better Work. My name is Alison Beale, and I'm the director of the University of Oxford Japan office. Uh, we've got a really great panel today. Um, so I'd like to first of all int- introduce our uh, speakers. They cover a huge range of sectors. So we have uh, Deborah Hayden, who is the managing director at Finsbury Japan, which is one of the UK's leading corporate communications and public relations firms. Uh, Fatim Jib- Chimamboy, who's partner at Herbert Smith Freehills in Singapore and head of the Asia Employment, Pensions and Incentives practice there. Mitsuhiro Kanada is senior consultant at Arup, the global engineering consultancy, and he also has a role as associate professor at the Tokyo University of the Arts. Richard Lyle is a direct, senior director at Intralink, an international business development uh, consultancy with a deep specialism in East Asia and Jeremy Sampson, who is the Managing Director of Robert Walters Japan and Korea, which is one of the world's leading specialist recruitment uh, companies. As I say, the, the title of today's webinar is Back to Work, Back to Better Work. Um, we have a Q&A function on this webinar, so please send in your questions during the uh, conversation and we'll try and cover as much ground as we can, and there's a lot to cover. Um, Robert Walters, Japan, I think was one of the first companies to embrace uh, home working when the disease uh, first started to spread. I think that was uh, maybe in February, around late February that they started um, home working. And I thought it would be a really good way to fr- frame today's discussion by asking Jeremy, um, who was one of um, the pioneers in our webinar series, because he actually took part in the very first webinar um, BCCJ webinar that we held. So I'd like to ask Jeremy maybe if he could um, talk through your experiences of going into home working, and then now your experience of transitioning out. Jeremy?
2: Yeah, sure, sure. Thanks very much, Alice. And uh, and I, I think things have definitely come a long way since we did that very first webinar back. Uh, I think around mid March uh, it was actually and. Yeah, at that point, yeah, we, we just went full remote uh, across the office, I think from the 25th of February. So uh, quite a long time before the state of emergency. But for us as a business then, you know, we really wanted to to be quick to act and give our employees confidence that we are ahead of the game uh, and really had their health and and well-being uh, as as our top priority. And um, and actually on that note, I'm glad that we did because we've done a number of surveys uh, amongst clients and candidates uh, over the last few months. And one thing that's really come out of this is that employee engagement and and satisfaction has actually been far higher uh, with those companies that took action early. Uh, And in fact, satisfaction was more than double. Uh, in the companies that took action uh, and reacted to the situation in February uh, compared to those that took action in March uh, or even after the state of emergency. And you now other interesting findings that we've had is overall 71% of employees that uh, we surveyed, not within Robert Walters, but within our clients and candidates, uh, were satisfied uh, with their company's response. But uh, interestingly, 29% of employees were actually dissatisfied uh, with their company's response. But, for, for us in Robert Walters, I guess, I probably pointed out in the very first webinar, uh, but you know, three key focuses for us over the last three months that you know, we've continued to maintain. Uh, number one, of course, was the health and wellbeing uh, of our employees, uh, and we haven't shifted from that. Uh, secondly, was just around the communication, really just to ensure that we communicated everything effectively to, to both our own employees internally, uh, but also externally to the market and our clients and candidates. Uh, and a big part of that also was providing a seamless seamless service and support uh, for our clients and candidates uh, through this situation. And um, I think, yeah, we were able to transition quite effectively. And within about two weeks or so, uh, it did become the, the new normal, really. Uh, but, yeah, throughout the last few, few months, we've also continued to try and uh, evolve and improve and continue to implement new technologies as we've go- gone on. Uh, but one of the things we've tried to do is become as digital as possible. And, you know, we've really tried to uh, go digital and online and things like all of our invoicing, all of our pay slips, you know, contracts and agreements and, you know, DocuSign and, and programs like these are areas that uh, we've really tried to utilize to create efficiencies in the business and just take away some of that physical work. Uh, unfortunately, though, of course, there are some areas that still require hunkos, which we, we haven't been able to get around as yet. Uh, especially anything related to the government or or uh, banking-related documentation. So, hopefully, we'll see some improvements in that uh, in the the near future. Uh, And I guess, yeah, a big point I mentioned is around employee engagement and for us, and and this is something that we've really tried to focus on a lot over the last few months. And I think I probably struggled with it initially, uh, just getting the frequent communication out to all the employees and, you know, with all the different tools available these days, just... Trying to identify one that worked uh, and the best way and mode of, of communicating. So we we did everything from pre-recorded videos to email communication to live webinars and, and town hall meetings. Uh, and yeah, eventually I think we've, we've been able to communicate quite effectively uh, with all the business. And the other thing that we've really tried to do is a lot of well-being activities, just to bring people con- together and, and to connect while they're all working remotely. So we've had sessions with PE, with Joe, uh, if anyone knows that. We've had online yoga sessions, uh, online meditation sessions, and uh, even did a counseling session with TEL, a Tokyo English Lifeline, uh, which was really helpful just to uh, get into a little bit about the stresses that people may be feeling and and how to handle the return to the office. Uh, And then talking about the return to the office, I mean, it's something that we planned for, we talked about, pretty much from the day we went remote in the first place. It's not something that we wanted to wing uh, and just guess as we went. So it's something that the senior management team and myself, you know, we spent a lot of time consuming information, uh, just observing what was happening in the market. You know, watching webinars was another one uh, and really just taking note of what other companies, uh, but also what other countries uh, were doing with the return to work. So, you know, we tried to take as much as we could from you know, all, all different companies, all different countries, in order to, to formulate our plan. Uh, I guess another important thing that we did was to conduct an employee survey and we really wanted to sort of gauge the sentiment of our employees. You know, how do they feel about returning to work? What what concerns they have? What have they been struggling with at home? What anxieties uh, are they having about a return to the office? And you know this was really useful for us to really just gauge how the employees felt and take that into consideration uh, when we were formulating that plan. and. The, the plan itself, I won't go into every little detail. I think some of the other speakers will probably cover some of this off as well. But uh, we, we didn't just want to rush back to the office quickly. Uh, and we, we have gone a really staggered and, and staged approach. So uh, our plan is a four-stage approach uh, with stage three essentially being the state of emergency. That's uh, the office being closed and everybody working from home. So we shifted from stage three to stage two at the beginning of last week. And that's a staggered return uh, in Groups A and B, which I'll get into briefly in a moment. Uh, stage 1, which is where we look at having most of the whole population back to the office, uh, and that'd be followed by business as usual, which, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll come over sort of a, a timed, timed uh, period. So we're in Stage 2 right now. What that looks like is the Group A, Group B format. Uh, I know a lot of companies are doing that. But it's very, very common. Uh, and so what we've done with the Group A and B format is to really split the teams at team level, factoring in really the desk layout and the office layout. So, uh, we're trying to ensure that we, we maximize distancing within the office, and so that you know, everybody has sort of space, space between them uh, at the desk. Uh, and of course, we've tried to maintain flexibility for people also. So, we've made a point of not forcing anyone back to the office. Uh, and of course, anyone with you know, who's a working parent or living with or in a high risk category or anyone that's just genuinely uncomfortable about returning to the office where we're continuing to facilitate and accommodate uh, those people at this stage. Um, Another important point in our planning was just having a clear trigger for if and when we go back to work from home again. So if we see a second wave, uh, if we see cases escalating again, uh, we have a trigger in place where we'll close the office and send everybody to, to work from home again. Uh, and another important step for us was just having a town hall and explaining to everybody what our plan was, what the safety protocols were, uh, and just helping all the employees to understand uh, our approach to, to returning back to the office. Uh, so I guess in summary there, what we, we tried to do is just ensure that we, we had a clear plan. Uh, it wasn't just sort of guesswork and, and going back uh, roughly, but, uh, and also having a project team in place to make sure that we factored in uh, all parts of the business. So we're in week two now, uh, and so far, I think it's, it's gone quite well. Group uh, B is in the office. So I'm, I'm working from home this week, of course, uh, and so we're trying to ensure that there's no overlap uh, between the group A uh, and group B, and of course, for, for people's safety there. And it, it's also worth, worth noting for anyone that's planning or already doing uh, a return to the office is, you know, most people are keen to get back, but we also, it's important to realise that there's also a lot of anxiety There's people who aren't uh you know that keen and are quite concerned about coming back so it's important to to hear people like that out and make sure we're not assuming that everybody just wants to get back to it and i i think as a result of this you know the employees the the expectations of employees has has really changed and you know we're really seeing demand for more flexible work styles Uh, and what used to be a selling point is really now commonplace and a necessity so you know, providing flexible work and, and this sort of flexibility moving forward really does connect to the loyalty and uh, satisfaction of employees. So I guess in summary for, for Robert Walters and, and probably for all companies out there, I think it's it's really important to realise that how we reacted uh, initially and over the last few months, how we've communicated with employees over the last few months and, and the actions and things that we put in place moving forward really has had and, and will continue to have... Uh, a direct impact on employee engagement uh, and retention moving forward. So, uh, so that's us in, in summary, Alison.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you. And there's so many facets of that that I hope we'll be able to pick out over the course of this uh, conversation. We did actually have a question come through while you were speaking about uh, Robert Walters. And the question was, did you at the time, did you already have a BCP? Because it sounds as if you were very prepared. And so, for example, did all of your employees already have equipment?
2: Uh, good question. I covered this a little bit in the first uh, webinar, but we had a BCP, but honestly, it was quite out of date. Um, so thankfully, we had the foundations there, but we were very well set up technolo- uh, technology-wise. We had Microsoft Surface Pros, and we had all the, all the tools and Skype for Business and uh, you know, Workplace uh, and things like that. So we had the technology there. We just didn't have the, uh, the I guess, the remote work or the work from home uh, protocols in place
1: yeah that's great thank you and thank you shoko uh, tsuge for your uh, for the first question thank you yeah yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, BCPs, I think in Japan, most of our BCPs covered things like earthquake or natural disaster, and global pandemic was a bit lower down the list, maybe along with uh, being hit by a meteor from outer space. Um, but it seems that um, from what you've said, it sounds as if communications was a very key part to um, your success in transitioning in and out of uh, home working. So um, I'd like to move on now and ask um, Deborah about uh, communications in more depth. Um, Deb, what do you think have been the major lessons learned uh, for com- companies in the in terms of communications, both for internals and externals?
3: Um, thanks very much, Alison. Um, firstly, I'd just like to say, you know, Jeremy, thank you. Um, you know, I'm going to put you up as my PR poster child. Um, communications is crucial to, to getting through the the, the the situation that we've been in, and I'm. I'm really hoping, as, as you've discovered um, the, the depth that you need to go to, the care you need to take, that companies are going to actually realize the importance, um, particularly in Japan, of communicating with employees and external stakeholders, hopefully a lot more. Um, perhaps we can do something on the marketing effort there. You know, We'll have to have a little sidebar conversation. Um, I think there's been a lot of lessons learned. Um, People, um, Alison, to your point, I think people had their BCPs, but it was more, um, you know, what happens with the power generator and and what do I do when the the earthquake happens? Um, I don't think as many people were prepared to have a fully functioning office, um, fully functioning, you know, cities, fully functioning services, but um, be in the situation where they didn't want people to go out and about and wanted them to stay home. Um, Many Japanese companies, I think particularly, were were, were caught a little bit short. Um, But what we've observed over the last few months is how quickly companies have actually beefed up and and sorted things out. Um, I know of massive, very anti-diluvian traditional Japanese companies that have, you know, when they started and sort of like, oops, we've got a state of emergency here, um, said, right, we're going to do the right thing. Everybody work from home sort of post-menopausal 50-year-old sort of, you know, butchers were like, oh, my God, at home? What am I going to do? Some of them didn't even have VPNs. Um, They've now moved. They've got VPNs. Everybody's got tablets. And, you know, whether it's Microsoft or whether it's um, um, Apple or whatever, they've been able to connect. Um, And they've found the love of video conferencing. Um, In fact, there's a new word now called remohara, which is basically... um, you know, don't harass me when I'm remote working. I don't want you to actually ask me what's that in my living room. <clears throat> I don't want you to ask me what I'm wearing. Um, and I don't want to show you all those things either. Um, so, you know, um, the, the, the enthusiasm with which people have adopted the video conferencing um, is so much so that we have our new Remohada. Um So that's something you've got to be a bit careful of. Um, be polite and be respectful of people's circumstances. But I think the big thing, as Jeremy pointed out, is communications, As companies have learned that they're not gonna be judged only by their words, but also by their actions. And they have to actually communicate the care for their employees, the care and the respect for their customers. And they've got to do this again and again and again. Repetition has been, um, I think, one of the key points in, in making sure that people understand the messages. Um, with this new way of working, I think uh, a lot of new communications forms rather than Buccio sitting there bellowing things out from his sort of desk at the top of the tables. Um, he's actually had to sort of call up and have one-on-one conversations with his teams. Um, we haven't been in, in an office situation and been able to actually hope that by osmosis, everybody knows what's going on. We've actually had to sit down and explain and make sure and interact with, 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 with colleagues. Um, across all businesses. And I think this has been a very important learning that people have come um, come away with. Um, repeating messages, making sure people understand, checking in like the town halls that Jeremy's been talking about, um, ensuring that the teams are actually working together and functioning and actually giving the same messages to the customers. I think this has been a very important lesson for, for, for all companies.
1: Yeah, that's great. And... Deb, both um, you and Jeremy talked about the use of um, new technologies and new ways of communications. And I was just wondering, what do you think are the advantages and some of the maybe drawbacks of some of the new technologies we're using and how that impacts on team dynamics? Um, I think people have struggled at the start,
3: um, but gradually I think they're coming back to to actually realise how to communicate in this new way. Um, Your actions, your body language... um, over sort of seventy percent of, of, of what we what we say and, and getting our message across is actually by our body language. You know, if I'm sitting here talking to you now, saying, "Oh, we're really excited about coming back to work," um, you know, immediately that actually I'm not very excited. You've got to make sure that you're, you're you've got to make a double effort to make sure that you're communicating in sync with your body language, with your words, not just reading a massive speech off a off a, off a PowerPoint. You've got to actually make a bigger effort to to engage with your audiences. Just the simple looking at the camera rather than the picture of yourself performing actually makes it look like you're talking to the people that are watching the the the, the webinar. So there's been a lot of I think you know hits and misses. I think we've all got our favourite stories of like oops, um, you know I wish the dog had come in and sort of eaten my dinner or. Taken my homework away, sort of right when I was on on the camera. Um, I think we've all got those those stories. But I think the nice thing is, is people have actually seen a little bit more of the humanity of their of their of their colleagues, the humanity of their bosses. Um, this has been a time when um, just you know being a logical and and straightforward sort of order maker, um, communication sort of driven firm hasn't actually worked you've had to sort of bring out the empathetic side you've had to actually reach out to to people and to show um that you care back to my earlier comment is it's it's not just your words it's actions it's actually showing that you're you're putting your money where your mouth is. that you're actually giving your staff the flexibility to be able to do things differently to try different technologies to try different platforms and um and i think they're still evolving yeah that's great yeah yeah
1: thank you again there's so much uh, i'd like to kind of pull out more about that. Um, but if I could just um, move over now to Fatim and um, just ask a little because we've been talking about um, what's nice to do and we've been talking a little bit about best practice. But could I ask you, um, Fatim, more about the legal aspects and what's, where's the line between what we should be doing and what our legal responsibilities as, are as, employ, as employers?
4: never a very clean line unfortunately there's often some bleed and some (coughs) overlap between the two areas i think the the legal impact does hit on most of the areas that everyone um today is talking about and if we think particularly or specifically first of all sustained remote remote working that jeremy talked about this idea that we might use this model of work longer term if companies are thinking of moving to a model where employees are able to work from home more longer term and for this to be a more permanent method of operating, that's a massive cultural shift first of all for Japan and it's really heartening to hear some of these stories of how quickly some of your um, businesses have already been able able <clears throat> excuse me to transition over into that model but the way in which we did this was very much as an emergency response it wasn't well thought out necessarily uh, as deborah mentioned the bcps didn't have sustained two month long home working in their in their minds when they were written so we need to start thinking first of all do your employees have the space the setup and the safe working environment in their homes You still owe them as an employer the general duty of care. So you do have some responsibility to have a conversation with the employee to ask whether or not they can work from home. Imposing work from home when it was mandatory due to government orders is one thing, but requiring employees to work from home longer term is going to require a conversation between the employer and the employee. One of the sore topics, one of the things that really does upset um, employees, and and it may have come out, Jeremy, in your um, employee engagement survey, is as they are asked to work from home for longer and longer periods, the cost of working from home is creeping up. So should I have to buy my own printer? Should I have to buy a second screen? Or should my employer be um, paying for those resources that allow me to work more effectively and more productively at home? And some of the big uh, big companies have already made very public decisions. Uh, Google announced a thousand dollar grant to all employees to allow them to decide how best to use that money to set up their work from home. That's not going to be possible for every company or financially uh, possible for every company, but at least thinking about what is the work that I'm expecting you to perform at home? And have I given you the tools and the equipment? And particularly looking at that for your lower paid staff, where the impact is is obviously much more significant and meaningful. And whether that's thinking about allowances or actually physically providing equipment, providing the second screens and the printers on loan for home use. Information isn't, um, isn't leaking. And thirdly, in that space, um, the employee management piece becomes really important. How are you going to manage performance and specifically, underperformance of employees if they are working from home it's much much easier to have conversations face to face with employees and the communication piece is absolutely vital you shouldn't be um, you shouldn't shy away from having the same type of performance and management conversations as you would with an employee physically present in the office as you should if they were working uh, remotely so sustained working um, from home is going to be one area that does have some legal parameters we need to think about the other one one, of course, is if you are reopening your offices and physically requiring employees to come back into the office, uh, there's there's much more legal framework around that. We've got to make sure we've got safe working spaces. So that means ensuring you've got your safe distancing uh, measures in place, ensuring that you're providing personal protective equipment, staggering the entry into the office as far as possible, thinking about the split team approach, if that's appropriate for your business with the team A and team B, uh, segregation so working around that piece and that requires not just a one-off upfront investment of thinking about what needs to be done but it also requires an ongoing commitment to ensure safety Uh, As time goes on and employees come back into the office, it's going to be harder and harder to keep them to those strict uh, distancing requirements in particular. Uh, The Ministry of Health and Labour and Welfare in Japan hasn't been as prescriptive as in other jurisdictions with the requirements, but you still do have this general duty of health and safety uh, towards your employees, and you're going to have to think about making sure that the workspace is safe. Um, And finally, there are lots of topics, but the 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 last one I just wanted to point um, out from a legal perspective is personal data. Um, As part of the monitoring um, and safety measures, we're often taking temperature checks, we're asking for medical information about employees' symptoms, particularly their respiratory symptoms. You're collecting sensitive personal data. So do you have in place a proper data retention policy and are you handling that data in accordance with the requirements? Again, what you did in the short term as an interim emergency response to the pandemic will allow you some leeway. But as these become sustained um, and embedded patterns going forward, we need to think a little bit more clearly to make sure that we do have compliance with our legal requirements in terms of personal data and also more broadly health and safety.
1: That's great. Thank you. There's so much to, to, um, to think about. I'm afraid, I think that at least for me, you froze for part of, your, um, part of that um, in oh. point two, Um, so please excuse me if you did cover this, but um, can I just ask you, we talked a little bit about how different people react very differently to going back, and what what should we do if some people don't want to go back? Is there any way that we could force people, or what what should we do in those sorts of situations? Legally, there are some
4: options, but I think before you even had that discussion about whether or not you have the legal right to force an employee back to work, I think Jeremy's point about the employee engagement and do you want to do this becomes very, very important. Understanding why the employee is reluctant to come back to work. It may be that they have underlying medical conditions or they live with vulnerable um, individuals, elderly parents or very young children or or those that are unwell. So there can be really meaningful reasons why an employee doesn't want to come back to work and making sure that you're not just implementing a black and white hardline uh, approach to that question. Assuming that you really feel you have to bring the employee back to work and that you don't have an option you probably could force the employee back You could make a reasonable and lawful direction to say you're required back into the workplace Um, But even when, when clients ask us for advice in this space our advice is always tempered with that's rarely going to be the right thing to do You are better off focusing on the narrative the communication and the steps that will give the employee the comfort that they will be safe in your workplace or trying to adopt measures that adapt the working environment for them, whether that's allowing them to come in late or stagger their work hours or, or help them in some other way to feel confident and comfortable. But ultimately, you could probably issue a, a lawful direction to require them to come back to work. Japan is a very employee friendly jurisdiction. My day, I don't think the courts will look particularly favourably on employers that take disciplinary action against employees in this circumstance. But there are avenues if you were so minded to, to consider them.
1: Okay, Great. Thank you. Um Mitz, I'd like to come over to you now, because what I felt over the last three months is that we've all developed a very different relationship to the physical um, environment in which we're in. So, for example, our homes, our offices, but also the kind of wider environment, our towns and cities. So um, can I ask you how you think this experience during the pandemic will change our relationship to our physical environment?
5: Right, Um, the buildings and the cities change very slowly compared to the the value that we have. I think we've seen that value changes very, very quickly, like really surprisingly quickly. Um, Whereas built environment uh, responds to that like a year or two years later. Um, If I can show you, uh, if I can share my screen. So, Back to work. Um, well, I should say back to office because it's not like we have been playing, you know, we have been working just not from office. Um, and, uh, in the building of the future that we might design, shown on the right, we don't have to worry about the travel to work in congested train or whether the office air is healthy or not. But for now, I think uh, many of us uh, gradually, in fact, like now, uh, in a few weeks' time, that gradually have to go back to work. Um, Maybe not as often and as long hours as we used to be, but still. And initially, we will come to an office like half empty. But half, you know, 50-50, that's in team A and B, is that enough? Is that the right level of reduction? Or, you know, do we need to reduce more or we can actually have more? And air quality, HVAC, HVAC stands for uh, heating, ventilating and air conditioning. I know it's not a very popular office conversation subject unless you work for a company like ours. Uh, So let's take a look at uh, what impact social uh, distancing has on our uh, workspace uh, and travel. Um, In Japan, like UK, we we say two meter uh, social distancing but as you, you know, probably you are aware, that if you talk to your colleagues uh, in the States, they say six feet, which is about 1.8 meters, so it's more or less the same. But I was surprised that in Germany, that they say 1.5 meters. Uh, I don't know why it's not one, it's not two, but 1.5, I think that's very German. And WHO has something completely different. But, you know, as we know that we move in the office, so it's not, the two meter distance uh, with tolerance that, uh, you know, that between uh, you know, where we sit. But in reality, you know, we, there's a sort of denser area and less denser areas. And also because we move around, the tolerance is needed. And if we actually keep two meter and tolerance, then that means that office population density needs to go down to uh, 35%. So it's one third. So actually, if we say 50-50, or half-empty office, if we want to keep two-meter social distancing with tolerance, actually that's not enough. That's more like Germany. We are actually saying, if we say group A and group B, if everybody comes, I know that not everybody comes, but uh, and that means that we have about 45 to 50 percent that's equivalent to 1.5 meter uh, with some tolerance. So it's uh, a little bit uh, have to believe that even if it's a half empty, actually we are not keeping the social distance that we set. And, but in reality, we all know that uh, it's not where we sit and how far we sit, but the uh, uh, majority of uh, sort of time of proximity happens, um, you know, when you actually go to the bathroom or go to the kitchen or whatever, so that it happens along the corridor and it doesn't really happen uniformly, uh, we, you know, in our office. So rather than saying two meter or 1.5 meter or sticking to 50% or 35%, I think you should just look at your office plan and how your teams work, you know, when they come, how they interact with each other, and, you know, how the furniture is arranged. So each office. Has a sort of unique condition and you can actually establish what's the right level of the um, social distancing for your office and you can rearrange your furniture, or you can rearrange the way team interacts with each other and you, you don't have to do the analysis. It's a common sense. And uh, I'm not going to uh, bore you with the um, mechanical services equipment stories, but uh, and the obvious thing is that uh, there are easy uh, measures that you can take, and also uh, long-term, more costly solutions that you need to adapt. And the easiest thing you can do, and maybe uh, at home as well, if you remember, if you forget everything I said today, one thing you can maybe remember is that uh, the humidity level um, is something you can actually control, and uh, optimum to fight against not just virus but bacteria is 40 to 60%. So that you can check at your home, at the office. And it's actually not that difficult to do uh, for Japanese summer. It's very humid, as you know. But the, when the second wave comes, um, you know, in later fall or beginning of winter, it's likely that outside uh, air humidity is like 15%, 20%. So if you can remember that at home or at the office, if you can humidify your a workplace, uh, you know, it helps a little bit. And of course, there are a lot of um, uh, more significant measures you can take and uh, uh, many companies and also uh, many or some uh, office share companies are seriously addressing uh, these issues because uh, people and the firms uh, care about the air quality um, they breathe because Before, you know, uh, uh, good indoor air quality was granted unless something smelled funny. But people now uh, want to know uh, the quality of the air they're breathing. And as the management, I think office management needs to address um, these issues uh, and need to really uh, be seen that they care. And uh, of course, uh, it's not just uh, work or home, but uh, of course, you know, we most of us have to travel between uh, work and home. And actually, um, many people don't want to come back to the office because they are are worried about uh, really packed. Well, it's not as packed as it used to be, but uh, Japanese um, subways and trains are quite infamous for uh, being packed like uh, sushi. And, uh, Here you don't have to really know the details, but this is a train station with a ticketing um, booth. And the left-hand side is just as normal and the right-hand side is is with some intervention of social distancing. And uh, two things uh, as the uh, bottom diagram shows that you can actually make difference uh, in terms of uh, time of proximity uh, by having some intervention but of course um, as the you know the left hand ha- side has already finished and the right hand side is still going on it means that of course it takes longer and it's not just at, at the station but it's at the entrance lobby of your um, office or when you come out of an elevator or when you are waiting for elevator for lunchtime or something like that so same thing happens and of course we cannot completely change it but you can actually make some intervention to make it better so, um, as I said in the beginning that, the, um, the physical environment takes time to change, but the value we have changes quite quickly. Like if you have an office in a building, a higher floors are uh, more premium and more expensive, but that might change. Maybe the ground floor or, or when an easy access by escalator, that's a lower part might have more premium. And, you know, now the open plan uh, office is quite popular and, uh, I think many offices adapt the hot desking, but that might change. Maybe we are back to cubicles and, uh, you know, uh, people wanting to work in a different uh, office conditions and that will change uh, the city, suburban, countryside, where we live and work. And that will gradually sort of sink into the design of our new generation buildings and cities. So I think the value change first and built environment uh, responds to that.
1: Yeah, oh, that's great. Thank you. That's uh, really um, interesting. And there's lots, again, to, uh, to um, think about. And I mean, you talked, um, what came across through your presentation is that there's lots that can be done and that, um, that can be done to make the place uh, safer. And I think this links to a question that we've actually just come in, come in that's coming through the audience, which is to Fatim, which is what's the ultimate responsibility of employers to ensure safety at the workplace?
4: you have a general duty of health and safety um and how that specifically um it applies in any given circumstance it depends on the circumstances so in light of COVID-19 there are specific measures about safe distancing and ensuring your employees have access to personal protective equipment so hand sanitizers and face masks but those are the very specific um, and immediate responses that have come out from COVID-19. There sits above that the broader duty of health uh, and safety towards an employee and not just employees but any visitors visitors, contractors or other people that are on your premises, you'll have occupiers uh, duties as well. So we have to think about this not just in terms of the short-term issues that arise out of COVID-19, but more longer term. How are we going to make sure that our workplaces are safe, that we are not putting employees at risk of being able to contract a contagious um, uh, virus uh, just because they have chosen to come to work, so that that is the general duty on on the employer. They are going to have to address that duty Sorry, uh, by making sure that obviously we implement the safe distancing, but you can't control the safe distancing um, that you've just seen on the uh, on the transport links on the way into your office. So that's going to require you to think more broadly, not about health and safety, but more broadly about access to workplace and sustained remote working practices. So it's a really big duty, and it does lie on the shoulders of the employers to make sure that anyone coming into their uh, building and specifically their employees are able to the work you're expecting of them without the risk uh, of contracting the virus from their fellow employees or others on the premises as
1: well. Great, thank you, um, Mitz. Um, in the last, um, over the last. Very many years has been a move um, from people generally from countryside to cities. And this has happened in all sorts of countries, from developed countries, developing countries. But now we're all starting to homework and maybe cities are not looking as attractive if they're um, very crowded and potential to contract um, disease. So do you think this will have a long term effect on where people live and will people want to move more out to live into the countryside, do you think, in future?
5: I think so, because it depends on the countries and the um, level of development Uh, in underdeveloped countries, still the movement to the cities will definitely continue. So as a um, uh, sort of us as a whole, we'll still see urbanization as the main issue. But in developed countries like Japan or uh, UK, I think many people will question the value of living close to work or, you know, uh, going to the work in the uh, city center. And I, I, you know, clearly sort of remember that my um, friend living in a sort of remote countryside uh, near Sendai, and I asked him how, how he's doing. And he said, oh, I have a water, I have a river in front of my, you know, house, and I have, you know, I can make a fire, and, you know, I can have, you know, I have food. And, you know, you guys look pretty, you know, bad in Tokyo. And I thought, okay, maybe it's true that it's actually much not just safer, but it's actually richer lifestyle in, our, um, you know, countryside. And I think many people have realised that and well, people knew that, but people didn't, people felt that they didn't have choice, but uh, I guess, you know, now we know that we do.
1: Yeah, it's true. It'll be really interesting to see how this uh, all inv- evolves in the future and how it changes us maybe permanently. Um. so thank you, um, Mitsu from um Arab. Um. so, Richard, I'd like to turn to you now, because we've been talking about the new ways of working over the last three months. And in a sense, we've been kind of in crisis mode, thinking about how to survive and how to uh, protect our businesses. And now that we're coming out of that phase, we're looking um, forward more to how do we um, sustain um, work uh, with these new changed realities. So can I ask you, Richard, of Intralink, uh, can I ask for your insight into the most effective way to conduct? to conduct business given the new the new normal um of working practices
0: yeah thank you Alison, for that um, so um japan uh meetings without face to face now there's a conundrum right um, you know if you're not face to face you can't have a meeting i think the last few months um we've actually proved that's that's wrong um, so i'd like to talk about some of the experiences um, we've had, um, as you mentioned, we're um, a business development consultancy. So our business is about meetings, is about meeting customers, it's about obviously meeting with our clients, and so forth. Um, so face to face is really a key aspect of of our, our business and the, the core of our business. Uh, but we're not unique, of course, in in, in that respect. Um, So for us, um, you know, with uh, the sort of the state of emergency and the working from home, we obviously had to, we couldn't meet people face to face, um, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, So we had to move very quickly to what we call the, you know, the virtual meeting. Um, So uh, meeting people either, Uh, online over Webex or Zoom uh, or or whatever. Um, So, um, you know, it's fair to say, of course, with international business, um, the Webex has been around for years on client calls and weekly calls with the States and Europe. um, We, you know, we use Skype or or Zoom the whole time to talk to our clients. But here in Japan, we're always meeting our our customers face to face. Um, So I think culturally, um, there's differences there. So the UK is much more um, used to sort of and doing stuff online, meeting online, and um, whereas Japan wasn't, but is, is, of course, is changing. Um, that, that is changing now. Um, and then we've heard all talk about the large corporations and, and SMEs. Uh, definitely, I think in Japan. Um, you see a a big difference there. Um, The large corporations, it's very, you know, the word katai in Japanese, you know, very sort of rigid, really springs to mind. Um, They, there's certain things they can and can't do in terms of, um, they they can't use Zoom, but they can use Teams, um, or they can only use business for Skype, um, which is a nightmare to use, as as we've all experienced, for example. Those sort of things, um, they... They're not in the office, um, so they can't sign an NDA or whatever. You know, it's, it's there's all those sort of things we've had to deal with. But anyway, um, I think we've seen that generally smaller organisations in Japan have been um, quicker to adapt and, and, and easier to sort of to work with, where some of the large corporations have been a bit more challenging um, to actually move to those virtual meetings. Um, I think what we've also found anecdotally is. Um, uh, a, probably a couple of things I'd like to talk about um, there's people we we have existing relationships with and then there's people we're meeting for the first time um, for people we have existing relationships with we found it's quite easy to actually encourage them to do the virtual meeting because we've exchanged we've met them in person we've exchanged business cards in person as so we actually have a relationship with those people so the virtual meeting hasn't been too difficult to sort of continue that relationship online rather than face-to-face uh, with new people though, that has been a, a challenge. Um, I think in the first, you know, when state of emergency was was happening, what we found was a lot of companies just pushed it out. They said, look, once the state of emergency is finished and we're back to face-to-face, let's do a meeting then. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we've seen in June, interesting is, they've realized that the new norm, you know, is not the old norm. Um, so what we found is actually those, those companies are now responding more to um, virtual meetings. Um, so we've had, you know, first meetings with people we've never met before, virtually, which the, the, there's definitely been um, a change there. And I think also what has worked very well is um, when you have a meeting, um, you know, you, you start with video footage so that everyone can see people. So you, you don't have the face to face, but you've got at least a faces on a screen that you're sort of looking at and talking to. Uh, and so forth, um, and then maybe turn off your video and go into presentation or, or so forth. So ha- you have some aspect of, of face-to-face still um, exists. And actually we found with our clients for years, we did you know, calls with them where we would just have voice. Um, now actually we do video calls with a lot of our clients and so we, we can actually see them. And I think we found actually it's improved our relationships with our clients overseas because we're seeing them more regularly, you know, not, not, not in person, but on a weekly call um, over Zoom or whatever. Um, I sort of touched on it a little bit earlier. Um, of course, there's a whole lot of platforms that um, you can use for the virtual meeting. Um, I think there's no secrets here. Everyone knows zoom just works. Um, and then Skype for business doesn't work. Sorry to, you know, I don't want to trash Microsoft, but um, Skype for business just hasn't worked for a lot of people we talk to Microsoft teams is a bit hit and miss. And then you've got, you know, other sort of WebEx platforms, but I think, um, what we found is if companies can allow it zoom just works and, and you can do it. Um, so we've sort of we start with that um, And then there's, you know, there's ways around things. So if if companies um, Don't allow zoom, perhaps you can off, offer telephone numbers where they can call in to zoom um, So they can use a telephone line rather than sort of the uh, online platform if their IT system doesn't allow that for example um, And then um, we found obviously there's this technical issues. Um, so I think Japan um, is generally getting better. When we, when we first started, would find a lot of calls where, oh, where's Tanaka-san? Oh, um, you know, call him up. Oh yeah, I, what button do I press? You know, how do I, how do I get on the, you know, all, all those sort of things. Uh, I think J- Japanese companies are now getting more used to that. So there's less technical issues, but I think on every call, usually there's some hiccup here or there. Um, And so we found that, you know, backup plans are quite good. So set up a Zoom call, but just in case, have uh, a team set on in the background, just in case things don't work um, properly. And I guess finally, I'd like to just touch on sort of uh, making sure that that virtual meeting runs well. Um, So that's where the setup is really key. And, and, you know, in some ways, there's probably no difference from a face-to-face meeting. So having a very clear agenda um, and sharing that agenda prior to the meeting to make sure that it's clear What's going to be discussed in the meeting? So that's you know that's no different from from face to face. But I think in the the virtual meeting, it's really critical. So everyone's very clear what's happening. It's introductions and it's you know um, talk about your business and talk about our business and Q and A. Even at that level, um, it still helps the sort of the flow of the event. Um, and also, it's it's often difficult to understand who's on the call, um, and um, you know, from, from from the customer side, so that's again where you can preempt things. Um, Japan loves to be organised; they they love all that sort of stuff. You know, the pre meeting to talk about the meeting, the post meeting. So the pre meeting now is an email beforehand. Uh, who's coming to the meeting? Um, what are their roles? What are their names? What are they going to talk about? You know, you can do all that over, over, the, over email and Japan loves that because it shows that you're sort of responding to customer needs. You're sort of, you know, you're understanding um, their, their their issues. Um, so by the time of that virtual call, it's very clear. Okay, today we have Tanaka-san, Yamada-san, and you know, Sato-san and then Tanaka-san's Butcho. So he's a he's person we want to sort of wow with whatever we're, we're, we're talking about. Um, um, and then, you know, making sure that um, on your side there's someone clearly in, in control of the agenda, clearly in control of the flow of things so that you're not sort of stumbling around the, the presentation finishes and then there's a, there's a silence. Um, because I think in face to face, silence is golden, as they say in Japan. Um, I think in the virtual space, unfortunately, silence is hell. Um, and, you know, five seconds of silence feels like, you know, five hours of, of um, you know, hell uh, online. So having someone very clearly on your side uh, on, on um, leading the call and making sure that um, it's clear. And then, and if there is a gap, you know, Tanaka-san, it's your turn now to um, present on the company. Please, can you go ahead? Uh, oh, Tanaka-san, the, the, you know, your connection's faulty. Can Sato-san do it in in, in terms, in, in, instead of you, for example? Um, so that's a long way of saying, I think we, we have moved from face-to-face to virtual and now funnily enough, um, a lot of Japanese companies, we, we thought we'd be straight back to face-to-face. Uh, most of our meetings this month have still been uh, virtual, are continuing to be virtual, and some. so we're, we're now offering companies, and to, that, to the point about people feeling comfortable, which has been a very key theme, um, I think, of today's talk. Um, we actually offer companies, we'd like to meet you next week. We're very happy to come and meet you know your offices, but if you'd feel more comfortable, we can do it over virtual if you want. And we found that's worked very, um, very well indeed. And and still quite a few of our meetings are are virtual. I think we do have some we have had some face-to-face meetings from the beginning of June, um, but I would say probably at the moment, it's it's a 80-20 split or maybe 90-10 split, but um, we're seeing it's gradually moving back to more um, face-to-face, I I would say. Uh, So thank you. Yes, I think, um, you know, virtual is working in Japan. It still has its challenges. um, But as long as you just follow um, you know, common sense, I think we found that it can, you can still get very meaningful meetings and business can move forward. We still close deals in this period of time um, and we will continue to close deals um, as we move forward as well. Thank you.
1: Great. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, people certainly are very loyal to their platforms, aren't they? People either love uh, Zoom or they love Microsoft uh, yeah. Teams in kind of equal uh, measure, I think. Um, so. I wanted to ask a little bit about kind of relationship building, because, of course, in Japan, a lot of relationship building sometimes takes place outside the office or maybe in more social um, settings. So is there any way to replicate that kind of um, interaction, do you think?
0: Yes. Well, so we've had a few sort of new Japanese phrases that have come to life during this period. and so the. Um, uh, on uh, what was it uh, on nomi I think is the expression that they use for an online nomikai. Um so we have um, as a company done that um, so I think to Jeremy's point about you know communication with your your um, colleagues we found that yes absolutely we need to because we don't have the face on the office we need to have that so we've done a few on nomi sessions with our colleagues on a Friday evening you know relax over at home over a, a beer or two or, or a soft drink um, we haven't got to that stage yet with the Japanese companies uh, and um, we, I, I guess I'm still considering how we would do that. I still think um, that's going to be a bit of a challenging one and I, you know Japan when you want to sort of when you're in the last stages of closing a deal often it is you know when you get to the nomikai you know when you get to the stages where they want to take you out for dinner um, uh, that is obviously quite an important part still. Um, so I think that's still TBD, I would say, not trying to sort of want to not answer that question. Um, but I think, yes, to, to perhaps um, the point I'd like to make is virtual works, but actually what it doesn't do is, um, you know, going around uh, so during a meeting, going outside for with, um, if, you, if you still smoke, that is, um, with, you know, the the, the show to sort of talk about that, or, you know, sort of socializing outside of the meeting, what I'm trying to, trying to say. So what the virtual meeting does misses that sort of in the corridor speaking to someone to sort of understand what they 're really thinking what 's really going on so I think we still have to sort of explore how that 's going to work um, um, so I think that's still perhaps um, perhaps the next stage of the of the evolution of the virtual meeting how we would do that and, and possibly that 's a sort of a a one-to-one virtual meeting with Butcho after the meeting to say, you know, sato how do you feel the meeting went? You know, what, what's going on on your side? What, what can we help do to help you sort of move this forward, for example? So perhaps that's the next evolution of this, that it's uh, the after meeting isn't, you know, the walk to the elevator after the meeting or, 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 or in the lobby. It's a sort of a quick call one-to-one with whoever to sort of really get the, their, their feeling, the, the hand, you know, of, of how the meeting went, for example. Mm,
1: really interesting. Um, we don't have much time left and we've got a lot of really great questions. So now I'd like to open up to some of the uh, questions that have come in. And um, Jeremy, we've got a question for you, um, first of all. Um, so we've got a question about how you're managing employee productivity in, uh, in your company. And as a follow up, maybe Deb and Fatima, could you maybe comment after Jeremy about um, any communications or legal issues around managing p- uh, poorly performing staff? Jeremy, do you want to have
2: a go first at that? Sure, sure, absolutely. It's, uh, it's been something that, uh, yeah, we've, we've been looking at quite closely over, over the last few months. But it's interesting too, because if we look at productivity now, I mean, the, the, the activities that you know, we're seeing in the market and that we're expecting about employees is very different to what it would have been three or six months ago. Um, the reality is that the market has shifted, uh, the recruitment market has, has shifted. Uh, less companies are hiring. And, and so, yeah, the, the productivity levels probably can't be expected to be uh, what they were, you know, in, in a boom market, that's for sure. But, you know, one thing for us that is really important, I mean, firstly, it's just understanding expectations. I think everybody across the business understands what the expectations are, say, in terms of their own individual productivity. Yeah, you know, and we're, we're a business that, that measures on results and output uh, more so than, say, say presence. Uh, and so, yeah, everybody understands what their their output is, is What's required uh, and productivity is probably managed more at the team level more um, so than say, say myself overall uh, across the business So and it really depends on on functions also So the productivity of say, yeah, our accounting and finance department may be measured very very differently Compared to what our consultants output might be uh, when it comes to recruiting activity. So um, I think just ensuring that everybody understands exactly what what the targets are what the productivity levels are expected there's there's also full visibility across the business, so people can compare their own productivity to to colleagues across the business. So and that creates an element of accountability uh, there also. Uh, and as I said it really just uh, yeah breaking it down to team level also. Great, thank
1: you, Deb. Do you have any anything to add on to that? Well,
3: oh, just very quickly, um, you know poor performers that were poor performers before we had the situation are probably likely to be struggling in, in this new dynamic, whatever we want to call it. And I think the big thing is, you know, don't put square pegs in round holes, pay to people's strengths. Um, and, and I think as we've, we've all established is, is individual communication with employees, um, working with them as we move to a focus on, as Jeremy mentioned, outputs rather than just being there. And um, and really talking them through issues and and, and challenges. Um, I'll leave it to their team to, to talk about the ways to perhaps suggest that poorly performing employees could actually you know be happier somewhere else. Um, but uh, as Jeremy pointed out, it's it's going to be a tough environment at the moment, and um, and people will be wanting to hold on to their jobs. So we as employees and employers, as, as the first instance, owe it to to help poorly performing employees find a way to, to, to be slightly more successful. Fatim, over to you for the legal um, comments.
4: I think, I think that's spot on, Deborah. We are expecting to see a rise in litigation um, in the more, um, employer friendly juris- employee friendly jurisdiction sorry um, and Japan is a, a good example of that it's never been particularly easy in Japan to discipline certainly not to terminate the employment of employees and that's only going to be more difficult if you're having to do that whole process remotely. I think the start of that conversation has to be the expectations so both as an employer more broadly but specifically the manager managing the employee, setting expectations not only on output. Um, which is sometimes objectively measurable um, through through productivity metrics but also the expectation on how I want you to work whilst you are remotely working. Am I expecting you to be present for the whole day at a desk? Am I expecting you to answer your phone quicker or is it Skype messages or is it email? How how do you want to connect and interact with me whilst I'm in my home environment which is of course uh, necessarily very different to, to being in the work environment? You're losing the sort of accidental communication that bumping into people in the corridors or seeing them in the in the pantry you're missing that opportunity to have interaction and connection and sometimes it can be very difficult if the only communication you're getting with your manager is the request to do work and then the critique of that work so we need to make sure that we're, we're filling that gap in with some more connection and communication and really being very very clear about what we expect uh, but if they are a poor performing employee they're a poor performing employee and you're going to have to grapple with that performance improvement process with them as i said from the outset that's never been easy and it, it, it's not going to be any easier but you can still and you should you, you shouldn't not address poor performing employees just because they're working remotely you should be having the conversations you should be thinking about whether it's time to escalate and put them onto a formal performance improvement plan um, and if so just being mindful that your check-ins or the way in which you would ordinarily catch up with the employee need to be really thought about very very carefully trying to use video more than just audio or email where sometimes the message is, is not fully understood or construed uh, seeing if you can pick up some clues are there particular reasons why is this employee really struggling to work from home is this employee facing really difficult challenges we know for many employees who, who are working from home they're suddenly faced with the environment of having young children at home for whom they might then be primarily responsible elderly parents who again they might have to also be responsible for it can be very difficult to do your normal job if your surroundings aren't conducive to that so thinking um, about that as well I think If you do take disciplinary action against employees during this period, you have to make sure that you have tempered that decision to take into account these exceptional circumstances um, and make sure that really the decision that you are taking is not just in the abstract appropriate for this poor performing employee, but is appropriate in the context of the world in which we're currently living. So I think there has to be a little bit of flexibility and, and adapting around the edges there. But the key message has got to be if you've got a poor performing employee, you do have to address it and take them through the same process that you would have done had you been back in the offices.
1: Great right, yeah and I think you made a really important point that it is difficult working in this um, kind of new environment so um, that leads on to important question that's come in on um, how new incoming employees can effectively integrate with a long-standing team because obviously this has happened over um, April which is traditionally a time when a lot of new members join the teams in Japan so Uh, Any quick thoughts, because I'm conscious that we're running out of time, but uh, this is an interesting question. So any quick thoughts on, um, as a team, how do you establish trust and and affiliation in this kind of environment? Does anyone want to take that?
3: I think this has to be very carefully managed um, and a process needs to be put in place because um, these new employees must not feel as though they're left out by themselves. Uh, Many companies we work with have have set up very strict mentoring systems where um, each individual new employee has a sort of, you know, more experienced or sometimes even two or three mentors to actually take them through the various processes. Uh, Regular check-ins on a daily basis, making sure that they've got tasks and things to to read, to look at and a place to go to and then very regular check-ins with the mentors. It's, it's very challenging. Not everyone's going to find it works, but um, if you have a good system in place and, um, and very, very clear protocols, uh, chances are that you will be able to start slowly bringing a new employee into the system.
0: Could, could I just add, um, we've actually had two employees um, come on in this period, um, and I would agree with all that um, Deb has said. Um, Communication has been absolutely vital. Um, and in fact, one of our employees in his first week, um, you know, he's a whole lot of meetings. So he's shown that um, it, it can work um, and, and be successful. But yes, I think communication is really critical. And that's where the daily check-ins is really important. And then we just take them through the normal processes of, of onboarding and induction and stuff. And it's just not face to face. It's over Zoom or, or whatever. So the normal processes, but with some extra TLC, definitely that, that's um, what I would say. But it, and it, it's worked. We've... It's new, been a new experience for us, but we found it, it, it has worked, of course.
1: Great. I'd love to carry on for much longer, but we've run out of time. I'd just like to um, ask one little final um, question, one thought from each of you, a little challenge. So the title of this session was Back to Work, Back to Better Work. So final, very quick piece of advice from each of you about how do we ensure that going back is we are actually going back to better work? who wants to start? (laughs) Oh, I'll kick off. Um, Flexibility, um, allowing
3: your employees a lot more freedom to be able to to choose how they want to work and how they want to interact with you. It could be flexible commuting. It could be work from home. And I think going forward, most companies are going to adopt some form of this. Interestingly, a survey I saw recently said um, over 90% of Japanese um, people surveyed in Japan wanted some form of work from home, whether two days a week, three days a week.
2: Um, and um, and finding a way to make that work. Yeah, and uh, I'd second what uh, what Deborah said there. Also, I think you know all of us have, have learned uh, so much, and our businesses have adapted so much over the last few months. So to revert back to the old ways uh, when we go back would be a huge mistake. So you know, maintaining and employing that that flexibility long term uh, that's going to really engage and retain those employees.
5: Yeah. I was going to add. Um, Diversity to what uh, Deborah said that Japan um, lacks diversity, and uh, now the conditions, our current conditions, really forces us to uh, adapt to different conditions. And as uh, Jeremy was saying, that majority of people will go back, but some of us will uh, stick to a new way. And uh, as a group, I think we will be more diverse and stronger. So if we can be a little bit sort of forgiving to people being different. And I think that's uh, hopefully uh, make the uh, workplace better.
0: Yeah, um, and, and probably it's a bit of repetition, but I would say, you know, obviously we have Canvas staff as to, you know, what's worked well in this situation. Um, so we, we plan to continue that. Um, so actually going forward, um, you know, pick up on some of the good, good things we've, we've learned, more flexibility about working from home as well um, for us. Um, you know, basically, as long as the work's being done, whether it's in the office or at home, um, we will continue with that. So I think it's it's just taking what we've learned from this and improving on it. Yeah,
4: I'd say you've got to listen to your employees. Um, obviously, this period has had a massive impact on businesses, but it's also had a tremendous personal impact. On employees and if we're trying to go back to the old way of thinking um, it's just not going to, to work anymore things have have changed things have moved on so you're going to need to, to talk to your employees understand them and really change the workplaces in a way that allows them to flourish
1: that's great thank you so much you've been a really excellent panel I've really really enjoyed this uh, conversation so thank you to all of our speakers today And uh, thank you also to everyone in the audience. You sent through some really interesting questions that have really helped to make this uh, conversation very rich. I'm sorry if we haven't been able to uh, cover all of your questions, but at BCCJ, we're going to try and um, ensure that our webinars in future cover um, all of these issues in in great detail. So please uh, keep an eye out on the upcoming uh, webinars and please continue to uh, take part. But uh, just thank you everyone and hope to see you all soon at a future webinar.